This phone's seen better days. Hold on. Well, hello, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, moms and dads, children of all ages. You are listening to and or watching are doing both to Living on a Thin Line with Tony Visick. I am... Tony Visick, we normally come to you. Hello, YouTubers. This is Living on a Thin Line. We normally come to you six days a week at uh, 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, I want to apologize to our regular listeners who tuned in yesterday to find that we were not on. <clears throat> we uh, fully intended to be on, but we also had a uh, scheduling conflict. And the scheduling conflict simply was that we were taping a show, a stand-up comedy show, at the Tempe Center for the Arts, which you'll be able to witness next Wednesday on the Tempe Center for the Arts Facebook page, by the way. We were pre-recording a show uh, at the Tempe Center for the Arts. Uh, I had to be there at 2 p.m. as the uh, host and producer of the event, <clears throat> or producer on my end. Tempe Center of the Arts is the uh, main producer. I had to be there to make sure everything went smoothly and to host the uh, afternoon, which will then pre be presented as the evening. So that's why we were not on yesterday. I'll tell you more about that show in a moment. We come to you on three platforms, ComedySchoolsRadioNetwork.com, where you can uh, simply listen. Let's say you're outside gardening or uh, digging a deep hole to throw a body in, uh, whatever your hobbies are. Uh, you can then listen while you, uh, while you work. Instead of whistling while you work, you don't have to whistle while you work anymore. You can listen to Living on a Thin Line on ComedySchoolsRadioNetwork.com. You can watch us in a panoramic fashion right there on YouTube on the Comedy Schools channel or in the intimate one-on-one -on -one FaceTime sort of thing we do here on Facebook Live. Three platforms. There are three tent poles that hold this show up. And believe me, this show needs every tent pole possible. Uh, we uh, are built on your questions and comments as you question and comment on the aforementioned uh, social media, and we then question and comment back. Um, we also uh, <clears throat> have uh, usually some knickknack or doodad or book or periodical or uh, autograph or memento that we then share with you visually and then try to weave a story around. And then we recommend one, <clears throat> excuse me, one or two artists or pieces of music of our vast vinyl album and CD collection. So that is how the show is put together. Um, you know, I'm watching the news in the morning. Uh, I don't really catch a lot of it, and it's because I have uh, three animals. Uh, we have uh, Roscoe, who's about 60, 70 pounds and is close to 10 years old. We have Chica, who's about 8 pounds and is close to 14 or 15 years old. And we've got Ray, the cat, which is about 10 weeks old. And they decide that when I watch the news, it's a great time for them to all roughhouse throughout the house. But I do catch up, uh, catch bits and pieces uh, between that uh, incredible stage production that's laid out before me in the morning. And uh, I got to say, I've seen a lot of crazy things in my life. And my God, these things are all sounding like cliches right now. But to see what's going on with this election and to see what's going on with this White House right now, I'm not talking about agreeing or disagreeing with policies or programs. 
I'm talking about deliberate sabotage of an incoming administration, which therefore is deliberate sabotage of the American economy and American health is stunning to behold. And don't you just realize, you know, in a world where we've been told our entire lives that we matter, you matter, you're important, your vote makes a difference, what you do has consequences. Don't you feel appallingly impotent as you watch these events swirl around you? As you realize that if on the slim outside chance that one Donald John Trump is successful in getting the Michigan elector uh, to get the, uh, uh, the election thrown to the Michigan uh, legislature, which is Republican, and they pick a group of electors which are Republican, and if he's able to do that in Pennsylvania or any sort of pressure at all, that the entire election could be upended and he could remain in the White House. Forget about the fact that over 5 million more people voted for him. I've been listening for four years to people go, well, that's not our system. And you will say that is not our system until the day it happens to one of yours. When that fine, fateful day comes that a Republican gets more popular votes if the Democrat still wins, there will be a wail and a howl bigger than anything I've ever heard or you've ever heard in your entire life. But watching our democracy turn into a mockery, watching Rudy Giuliani, I'm starting to think, I'm going to get off the serious part of it. <laughs> I'm going to go right to Rudy. I'm starting to think it's it all together possible. It would seem fantastical to even proffer the theory I'm about to share with you. In no reasonable scenario would anyone say, this makes sense. But here's a theory that no one has really landed on that I'm going to share with you here on Living on a Thin Line. That the entire Trump candidacy and administration was an elaborate, complex, and unrelenting campaign to make Rudy Giuliani look like a complete goddamned idiot. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani, who broke the back of the American mafia, who broke the back of what was established organized crime from the time of uh, uh, Prohibition all the way up into the 80s, the man who finally decimated the Italian organization, sometime known as La Cosa Nostra, sometime known as the family, sometime known as the mafia, the man who became the mayor of New York, and many people, uh, many people believe that his policies and programs when he was mayor helped turn New York from a destitute hellhole into an exciting, wonderful place to live. Whether that's totally true or not, I don't know. A man who on 9-11 became known as America's mayor, a man who ran for Senate, was going to run for Senate against Hillary Clinton and then had to drop out because of injury, illness, that this man, who had a storied yet interesting career, he had fun times cross-dressing, his own wife threw him out of a, a Gracie mansion, the mansion for the, uh, uh, the mayor of New York City because he was having an affair. Uh, his personal life was always a little bit more colorful than you expect from someone who reaches his level or did up until recently, has been made to look like a feckless fool, an idiot, a clown, 
a joke, a goofball, a bad comic. Someone who, if I saw an open mic night, I go, let's, we're not hiring him and let's not have him in the open mic anymore. That perhaps, as you watched that press conference yesterday with rivulets of black mascara or hair dye rolling down his face as he spouted off, the last time I heard someone sound that crazy, they were standing on a corner and I gave him a quarter. Venezuela and Hugo Chavez and... <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the Masons and the, the Illuminated who uh, actually control all the light bulbs actually were making the lights flicker while people were trying to vote and they couldn't tell if it was Donald J. Trump or Joe Biden and, and, and literally calling for the throwing out of hundreds of thousands of ballots and the overturning of the will of the American electorate. To see that, to see the press conference a few days ago that was supposed to be at the Four Seasons that ended up in front of Four Seasons landscaping sandwiched between uh, an adult bookstore and uh, I don't know what else, a landscape. He stood in front of a garage door, pasted up with Trump signs, kind of like uh, uh, rock bands in the 80s, uh, putting up their posters all up and down the Sunset Strip, uh, 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 taping them onto walls, uh, corrugated garage door next to a porno booth <laughs> the way he has sounded and acted for four years it just occurred to me that it's altogether possible now hear me out donald j trump has been in the real estate business in new york there is a strong rumor that even though the italian mafia organized crime was decimated, they still have a strong toehold in many things, including construction. And if you're building something in New York, you're going to have to deal with them. And that while Rudy Giuliani was breaking the back of organized crime in New York, it's altogether possible he cost Donald J. Trump money, and Donald J. Trump, I'm going to get that guy, and ran for president, and kept asking Rudy to do outlandish things just to make him look like an idiot. I know that sounds insane that Donald J. Trump ran for president and was a, a frenemy of uh, Rudy Giuliani just to get back at him. That might sound insane until you see reports that a lot of the things that Donald J. Trump is doing right now is they go, well, they delegitimized me, delegitimized me when I uh, got in office because instead of uh, Russians helped me, so I'm going to do it to them. That he's being spiteful now. Could that spite run that deep? Some people say he decided to run the night of uh, um, uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner when he was in the office and uh, uh, Barack Obama heckled him from the podium. Hey, Donald, how you doing? So in the list of wild conspiracy theories and implausible scenarios and almost impossible strategies that you see floating about, on social media. Keep this one in mind. Donald J. Trump ran for president and then acted like he was friends with Rudy Giuliani just to get back at him and make him look like an idiot because he put some of his friends from the mafia in jail in the 80s. Okay, uh, that's my theory. What's yours? Who knows? How crazy is that? And by the way, by the way, if I were to write that out and get 10 of my friends to post it 10 times a day, on all different things, Facebook, Twitter, Poller, uh, uh, Pale Poller, 
uh, uh, won't you come into my parlor, uh, Pornhub? I don't know. Just keep posting it over and over and over. You would eventually see it get some traction. That's how stupid many of our friends and family have become. Okay. Hey, uh, a couple things to tell you about, ladies and gentlemen. Coming up uh, this weekend, if you're looking for fun, and who isn't looking for fun? Um, at JP's Comedy Club, jpscomedyclub.com, uh, owned and ran by a man who salts his pizzas, Jim Perry. Uh, you'll be able to see uh, one of Arizona and the country's finest comics, veteran of uh, the scene, going all the way back to the, uh, the golden, the, uh, the golden age, uh, the, new, uh, the new golden age of the late 70s, early 80s, all the way up till now, one George Cantor, man who regularly works with uh, Frank Caliendo and so many other people, is headlining J.P.'s Comedy Club. Two shows tonight, 7 and 9. Two shows Saturday, 7 and 9. Uh, going down there where you buy a ticket, you get it from old Jim Perry. Tell him Tony sent you. Go down and say, to him, hey, old Jim Perry, Tony sent us on down here. See some good comedy and some good shows. Also on the bill, as I understand it, because uh, I only booked the headliners because I'm arrogant. Um, none other than Mr. Josh Graves and Kerry Gallagher, two of the funniest people in the white-hot local Phoenix comedy scene today. So uh, that's going on this weekend. Safe social distance seating. Uh, everybody's required to wear a mask except when you're sitting down. Uh, uh, the performers are a minimum of 12 foot away from the nearest audience member. Uh, we make it as safe as possible for people to maybe get out and feel something a little normal and enjoy themselves. I might be popping down tonight or tomorrow to do some guest sets myself. You never know what's going to happen at JP's Comedy Club. Also, this Monday, ladies and gentlemen, is your last chance probably this year to get your career started. Uh, I will be holding a free audit of my stand-up comedy workshops this coming Monday, 7.30 p.m. at JP's Comedy Club. Um, all you got to do is show up, sign up, sit down, listen, participate. If you like what you hear and like what you see, We'll get you enrolled in our fun, fact-filled, and friendly beginning stand-up comedy workshop class. We've seen people go all the way from the first show to national television. Now, next Wednesday, and I'll be telling you about this when I get a little more information, the show that I taped yesterday uh, will be on Facebook on the Tempe Center for the Arts page. And as I find out more information to allow you to watch I will. This is a great show that I put together, uh, and it has Bob Kubota, Keith Ellis, uh, Mary Upchurch, and Jim Perry and myself. So from 2012 all the way up through now, but right now we're on a little hiatus, uh, we have been able to bring quality comedic entertainment to the city of Tempe and Greater Phoenix at the Tempe Center for the Arts, one of the most beautiful and cool places you will ever go into when you go into it. Now, we've been on hiatus since pandemic hit. It'll be for some time. But they're doing a Wednesday night series where they're actually having performers come into their large studio, classic stage, classic theater seating, and doing three camera shoots of poets, musicians, jugglers, singers, and yesterday comics. Now, they pre-taped us because we're comics. And there's always a chance that a comic all of a sudden goes, shit, and uh, then you have, trouble because it's a uh, city-sponsored event so they pre-taped us and it was quite a uh, quite an experience because there I am in a theater that I've done dozens upon dozens of shows in okay working with comics some of who I've been working with 30 years some the 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 least amount is maybe like three years 
you know, some for 10 years, uh, great comics, people who started my class, people who didn't start my class, but people who um, I believe are the backbone of the uh, Phoenix comedy scene. And we're performing to camera with no audience. People go, how'd you do that? Well, here's the instruction that I gave the comics before they went on. I said, look, guys, you're not going to hear any laughs, but based on some of your most recent performances, I don't think that's going to be a problem. <laughs> now, these guys are such professionals. Guys and gals are such professionals that they did a fantastic job of putting on an entertaining show that you're going to be able to watch uh, next Wednesday, and I'll tell you more about that as it comes up, okay? All right, let's get to the stuff, because I got stuff for you today. What time is it, Cheryl? How much time do I have? Uh, you got about 15 minutes. 15 minutes? Well, maybe. Maybe? Maybe. maybe. 12. 12 minutes. All right, so look at this. I found this while going through some stuff the other day. Oh, look at that. That's a lady in distress, if I've ever seen one. Look at her tied up there in her nightgown barefoot. Oh, my God. What is this? Is this something off Tinder? Is this something you see nowadays? No, it's not. This is official detective stories from October 1956. Combined with an actual detective story. Behind Tulsa's latest sensation, the kidnapping of Reverend Cook. And, of course, the story first come, first killed. Uh, published in uh, October 56. This cost an entire quarter. I want you to look at that cover. I might even uh, find that and stick it up on the uh, titles later on. These were purient, salacious, almost softcore bondage porn magazines that were consumed by the mainstream American public throughout the 50s and the 60s. Detective magazine, official detective stories. They usually had a cover exactly like this. The classic damsel in distress, half undressed, tied up and helpless with a look of terror on her face. You gotta remember during the 1950s, you can tell that she lives alone, because look, she has a, uh, where is it? Can, we get it, can I get the shot in there? Yeah, a pink telephone. There's a lady who was living on her own in her own place. There she had her jewelry out. Someone stole her jewelry, tied her up. You see the jewelry box. And who knows what would transpire next. The 50s were a very kind of repressed time. But at the same time, a time of great awakening and explosion culturally, personally, individually, politically, worldwide. If you got the kind of pornography that you can easily pull up on any phone right now, and any kid can do it too, unfortunately, uh, the kind of things that we normally see on television, on Showtime or HBO or, or FX or anything like that, if you had anything like that sent to you in the mail, it was sent in a brown paper envelope, and you could be arrested and put in jail for sending uh, pornography through the United States mail. But people still need a place to put their titillation Put their titillation. So what Hollywood did for a long time and what the magazine business did for a long time was had purient and lurid the bad and the beautiful, the bold and the beautiful, the dangerous woman, an affair to remember. And then the, uh, the insides, the movies were usually quite a bit tamer 
than the, um, than the uh, title suggested. It's the same thing with official detective and detective story. They always had these types of covers. And then inside, it was mostly a lot of writing. And by the way, they were more literate in those days. But as you can see, pretty boring pictures. Not even like good pictures. There you go. Mostly some black and white pictures and then a lot of writing. Not even like the uh, good um, um, actual pictures of, of uh, crime scenes. So they were come-ons. They were come-hither. They were wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Now, some of the stories were more purient. I remember these magazines well. Not because I bought them. Not because I read them. But my uh, dear grandma, Nani, married to my uh, great-grandma, Nani, married to my great-grandpa, Hank, both of whom served in World War I, was a large consumer of these types of magazines. She was, um, I think she was pretty much, a, pretty much a wild lady when she was young. She used to tell us, she'd go, well, when I was younger, I was a flapper. And then she'd take a drag off her camel cigarette and go, you don't know what that is, a flapper. Oh, we used to wear short skirts and dance to Charleston. And, you know, that all sounds silly now, but it was, uh, she was a wild woman of her time. Tamed the quiet, shy, studying to be a priest, Hank Satke, okay, lassoed him in, and they had a long-lasting, wonderful marriage. But she read those magazines all the time. So I'm a little boy, a little boy, sitting on the floor after we've been outside playing, and it's night. And they go, you kids, come inside. And we're just sitting on the floor as all the grown-ups sat around us, drinking and talking and smoking. Houses weren't big enough to actually go any other. If we entered some other room, started making noise, they may just come in there and sit down. So we'd stop making noise. And next to my grandma Nani, on her, where she sat, was a huge stack of magazines just like this. Woman with one high heel on and one high heel off, a ripped stocking, smeared lipstick, a look of terror, hands up, a hand coming to them. Total weirdo stuff that <laughs> I was exposed to when I was seven, eight, nine years old. So as we backtrack through our lives and go, how did I end up so messed up? Sometimes we could look to our childhood and go, oh, that was it. Creepy, weird detective story magazines with salacious covers of women showing their garters. <laughs> well, about to get murdered. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if any of you remember those things or had any, uh, have any uh, thoughts on those things, but it was uh, quite a time and uh, they were quite a group of magazines. As the 60s came about and it became a more open and free society, those magazines went by the wayside. There was no need for uh, that repressed uh, pseudo-sexuality any longer. You couldn't make a buck off of it. All right? When you got magazines where people are turning, appearing fully nude, uh, official detective kind of lost its place. Although mostly they were read by women. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but in the 1930s when they really clamped down on purient stories and sexuality and semi-nudity in uh, Hollywood, uh, the main type of movies they were clamping down on were movies that were shown in the afternoon that housewives would run off and watch while they were taking a break from their work uh, while their husbands were at work. So um, what that says about anything, I don't know. Uh, let's circle back to this. Now let's get to the music. Today we're going to talk about Nina Simone. That's Nina Simone, a younger Nina Simone. Nina Simone is not well known to the American public any longer. Was probably not well known to the American public in general during her time. Nina Simone is one of those people. You think you got a rough life? 
You think you're bumping up against things. You think you're not getting a break. From an early age, Nina Simone, who was a brilliant pianist and a brilliant singer and could sing all levels. She was called the high priestess of soul. Although I'll be honest to you, when I listen to her, it's much more jazz than soul. When I think soul, I'm thinking Aretha Franklin or I'm thinking... um, uh, I'm thinking uh, the Temptations or the Four Tops, you know. Uh, it's like I'm thinking blues. I'm thinking Coco Taylor, you know, or someone like that. Um, she was much more jazz, much more different, and a great songwriter as well. This album, uh, The High Priestess of Soul, was her 13th album. It came out in the 60s. Uh, great tunes on it, um, all the way from uh, The Look of Love, which was from Cena Royale, although she did not sing it on the uh, movie, to a uh, cover of The Association's Cherish which gives me my two degrees of separation from Nina Simone. Cherish was written by Terry Kirkman. And in the mid-80s, I hung out in a circle of people that Terry Kirkman was in and had several conversations with him. And um, at one time was explaining to people how um, I, uh, I used to trade drug for drug, you know, in my uh, drug-taking youth, how I traded um, uh, hardcore drugs. I, I stopped using hardcore drugs by dropping acid and I stopped dropping acid by drinking beer. Uh, and beer didn't lend to whiskey, and whiskey lent to cocaine, and blah, blah, blah. And Terry Kirkman said, you know, we used to have a, a saying on the bus, and I don't know if you know the band, The Association. So we had a saying, it was, a, watch out for the acid, it leads to beer. Um, the Association had big hits with Cherish and uh, Along Comes Mary and other tunes. Nina Simone covers it here. The song that we're going to recommend is not on this album. But the one that immortalizes her and caused her incredible problems during her life. And it's called Mississippi Goddamn. Mississippi Goddamn. I do not have an album with a copy of it on there, although I have a couple of her albums. Mississippi Goddamn was her protest song protesting the death of Megner Evers. And she wrote it during the height of the civil rights era. The height of African-American people demanding to be treated like human beings. People go, what do they want? They want to be treated like human beings. And let me say, once again, I'm no bleeding heart. I'm no woke person. I am just a person. But I am a person who understands that when everybody has an equal place at the table, everything is better. There's more food at the table. There's better ideas. And it's just the right thing to do. Nina Simone started out in life actually doing a concert. Uh, she was a brilliant uh, piano player as a young child. Uh, a piano teacher there started a fund to get her sent to Juilliard. She went to Juilliard at one of her first piano recitals. Her parents went down to sit in the front row to watch their daughter. They were informed they had to sit in the back because they were Negroes. She then refused to play. This is a teenage girl until her parents were properly seated once again. She marched with. Uh, she marched in the uh, Montgomery Selma marches. She um, uh, wrote that song. She did so many things. She had such a storied life, and she was a wild, wild lady. At one point, point, she married a carnival barker. Later on, she married a detective. She had to split from the United States and went and lived in Liberia for a while. Barbados. She died in Paris. Towards the end of her life, her alcohol and drug addiction led to wild mood swings and a lot of strange behavior. But if you spent your entire life being treated less than by animalistic people, as she was, I think you might go a little crazy yourself. Nina Simone was the high priestess of soul. 
her uh, signature song, and she did other things too. She did a, a great uh, a great version of uh, of uh, from Porgy and Bess. Uh, she did a lot of great stuff. She wrote her own songs. She interpreted songs. She sang jazz and pop and blues. And she's pretty much forgotten by the American public nowadays. But uh, Shirley was listening to her. I was listening. And uh, who'd you say she sounded like? Joe, Joan Armatrading, and if it wasn't for Nina Simone, there may not have been a Joan Armatrading. There, uh, there may not have been a lot of the singers that we hear today. Okay, an incredibly gifted artist who we shouldn't forget. We're recommending Mississippi, goddamn. But after that, you might want to listen to her version of Cherish, her version of the Look of Love, like one of those jazz vocalists that just comes in at a different time. Then you, like, if you're singing along, you start to sing, but they haven't. They wait that. 16th of a beat that all of a sudden makes the song completely different new and wonderful gifted wild woman of the 50s and 60s into the 70s and on nina simone that is our recommendation today check her out like look if you were like me you're raised on you know rock and roll if you're raised on chuck berry and little richard and the beatles and the stones and the grateful dead and leonard skinner and blah blah and bob dylan and all that nina simone probably wasn't uh in the forefront of your mind. So try something new. Try something different. And by the way, like I said, she was from the civil rights era, an era where we thought it was strange and horrible that black people would not be given a right to vote. And today I turn on my television and I see Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump trying to fight to have the votes of black African-American citizens in Atlanta and Detroit thrown out. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Hey, I'll be back with you um, Sunday at 2 p.m. You've been watching Living on a Thin Line with Tony Visick. Bye-bye.